Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service Radio. You're listening to DC Public Library on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, DC. I'm your host, David Quick, Adult Services Coordinator at the DC Public Library and lover of uh, literature and portraits. I'm joined today by Ashley Corrin, a good friend of the library from the Smithsonian Institution National Portrait Gallery. Thanks for joining us, Ashley. Thank you for having me, David. I'm so happy to be here. Sure thing. Uh, this is an episode of what we call DCPL Presents, where we talk about some of DCPL's fantastic special programming and partnerships. And so today we're going to talk about some of the work we've been doing with the National Portrait Gallery. Uh, before we get into that, tell us about yourself. Uh, what, tell us about your work at the Smithsonian, and I know you do some things at University of Maryland. Yes, yes. yes. Um, so uh, first and foremost, I'm a librarian. Yes, yes, The yes, yes. I'm a librarian, but right now... Um, I'm the Women's History Content and Interpretation Curator at the National Portrait Gallery. Um, So I work for both the National Portrait Gallery and also the Smithsonian's um, American Women's History Initiative, Mm -hmm. um, which seeks to deepen our knowledge and appreciation of women's contributions to history um, in American society um, to stimulate conversation about the ways in which um, these things have changed and to understand women's continuing influence in America in global context. Excellent, excellent. Um, well, there's a lot to explore there, yeah, so hopefully yeah. we'll get to it in our short <laughs> conversation. Uh, well, why don't uh, I can say that you know what we have upcoming from our partnership between the Portrait Gallery and the Library is a program that we call Art Afterwards, where we discuss a portrait and a book, and uh, we've been doing this uh, for a couple years now, where we try to find some kind of thematic or historical connection between a portrait and a book, and then talk about them uh, in yeah. the same conversation. Um, and so, uh, apropos of your focus at the the portrait gallery, we're going to focus on two women's uh, uh, two women uh, this coming month: Angela Davis, a, a photographic portrait that's part of an exhibition right now, and the young person's book, Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson. Uh, uh, in that context, talk about more about what you do at the Smithsonian in terms of highlighting the contributions of women sure. in the collections. Sure. Um, so my job is sort of split into three different um, areas, education, public programming, and um, collections research. And so the partnership with the DCPL sort of really fits into all three a little bit, yes. right? This idea yes. of thinking about who is in our collections, which stories are being represented, um, and how important it is to sort of promote these stories. Um, education in terms of the um, book club, this idea of partnering you know, prose and portraits, right? Yes. This idea that portraits might be able to provide a different level of understanding of a particular text um, or maybe provide a different story of our understanding of the particular author. Right, right. right. Um, I know that for Jacqueline Woodson, you guys are looking at um, Angela Davis and this idea of thinking about black womanhood um, and sort of thinking about... Um, issues of identity, thinking about issues of perseverance. Um, right. and, and Angela Davis is really personifies <laughs> that. I know that in May, um, we'll be talking about, um, we'll be reading Toni Morrison's Paradise right. um, and looking at a portrait of Toni Morrison, which I'm really excited about. Please yes. come in, in May if you're, if you're around, please come. Third Tuesday in May. Exactly. <laughs> um, and what I love about the, you know, this particular partnership is that 
everyone, not just the people reading the book, but us too as well, the National Portrait Gallery, to sort of think about sort of the really core themes, especially thinking about Toni Morrison, right? When I think about Toni Morrison, I think about um, female bonds, right? That's sort mm-hmm. of a core part of a, many of her stories. I think about um, white supremacy as a virus, right? Thinking mm-hmm. about Pacola Breedlove and the bluest eye and thinking about, you know, the characters in Paradise and sort of the effects of white supremacy in that particular town in Oklahoma. Um, and I also think about, you know, the preservation of family legacy and history, which I think is a really big part of her work too, yes. as well, this idea of um, the documentation of American history through storytelling um, and through oral traditions, right. which Toni Morrison did a lot throughout her career. And so I think the portrait that we have on view of Toni Morrison, um, it's very striking right. portrait. It's a portrait that you kind of really have to dig into, not a portrait where it's very accessible at first, right? You right. really do have to look at it for a while to sort of understand sort of what story is being told, mm-hmm. a particular portrait. And I think her, her books are kind of the same way, right? You really have to dig in deep. It's not, you can't be really superficial with it, right? You really have to take the time to analyze and to take in everything that it is that you're reading and seeing and imagining um, right. to sort of craft a story in your own mind. Yes. And that portrait, I, I, I assume we're talking about the it's a large kind of photorealistic portrait yep. of Toni Morrison, and it is quite, uh, you, can't, you can't walk by it without looking exactly. at it. <laughs> exactly, um, exactly. So that will be exciting. And I'll, I'll uh, do this as a shout out that we're actually including a, a third partner in that conversation, yep. a woman named Jamise Harper, who uh, does a lot on social media around books under the, the handle Spines and Vines, yes. and has been reading all of Toni Morrison's works uh, in different locations throughout this year, and we were lucky to snag her to lead the conversation yeah. of Paradise in May. So that's going to be a really great conversation. Exactly. And Toni Morrison really embodies you know, the type of women that we're focusing on for the American Women's History Initiative, right? Somebody who was groundbreaking, um, but somebody who, you know, it took her a while to get to where she was, mm. right? She, she did multiple things. She was an editor, right? She was a professor, right? She did all these different things sort of before breaking ground um, as a famous writer. And the idea that when you're thinking about women's stories, you're thinking about their trajectories, right? That's a part of their story, too, as well. I'm thinking about the relationship they had with other people, right? Angela Davis, she, had, she was an editor for Angela Davis at some point, right? right. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're thinking about women's history, you always want to be thinking about the relationships between other people and how that sort of adds um, to the general context of sort of their value and importance within American history. Right. Uh, so this project that's for all all of the Smithsonian Institution. Uh, Tell us more about that. What else is going on? Sure, sure. So it began officially in 2018. So the Smithsonian realized um, that there was a need to sort of really focus on women in our collections and our storytelling and our programming within education. And so they created this new initiative to really sort of hone in, okay, so we know that we have these fantastic collections. We have fantastic staff on hand who are ready to sort of share these stories. How can we sort of centralize that? Um, And so in 2018, they started the initiative. a part of the initiative, um, they're hiring people like me to be at different institutions to sort of really spearhead um, different initiatives to focus on promoting our collections, but also focusing on um, not just the famous one, but the everyday stories too as well. I'm really lucky in the fact that, you know, this year is 2020. It's the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment. Right. And so sort of tying, tying all those things in, right, this idea of a really celebrating a really commemorative moment in American history where you have women who are super famous, like Susan B. Anthony, um, or people who are everyday women um, who are fighting towards suffrage and really sort of honing in on those stories and, and making them accessible to folks. Right. 
are there, um, so since it started in 2018, are there any kind of particular outcomes or uh, yeah. things that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of the biggest things at National Portrait Gallery was our exhibition, Votes for Women, which unfortunately is now um, no longer up. Mm-hmm. Um, but our exhibition was sort of one of the big sort of opening statement pieces of the initiative, right? Really saying, you know, we're really serious about this. Um, this is incredibly important sort of bring these stories out there and to go sort of beyond um Susan B. Anthony, or even Ida B. Wells, right, really centralizing on women like Mary Church Terrell, who's local, right, centralizing mm-hmm. on their stories that are so important. So exhibitions are a really big part of it. Um, the, uh, the Museum of Ameri- American History is actually opening the exhibit this summer called Girlhood, which focuses on the lives of young women, Excellent. Um, which would be really fabulous. And then also the Portrait Gallery, we're having an exhibit um, on women called Her Story, mm-hmm. um, A Century of Women Writers, which also focuses on people like Morrison yes. and um, one of my um, favorites, Lorraine Hansberry, mm-hmm. um, Jhumpa Lahiri, um, and other women that are really, really important when we're talking about American literature. So exhibits, um, public programming, one of the things, um, we just published a book called Smithsonian American Women, which is sort of a pan-Smithsonian effort to sort of uh, create one particular story about our collections all across the museums and libraries that feature women. And as a part of that book, um, a number of us created a digital component for teachers, so um, conversation kits for K-12 instructors, sort Excellent. of helping them craft conversations around certain objects. What questions should you be asking? What primary sources should you be tying in with some of these objects to help students understand their particular context, right? What questions should you be asking, right, to sort of further along the story? So stuff like that. Very cool. Um, I know at the library we've been trying to be more proactive about uh, working with educators, like looking at what our collections are and how can we make them accessible and exactly. useful to educators. So that's good to know that you all are doing that too. We should all sit down and we should. compare notes <laughs> sometimes. Yeah. Soon. That'd and, be fun. And that's what I love. I mean, what's great about this initiative, David, is that it provides so many opportunities for cross collaboration, not just amongst the Smithsonian, but amongst other institutions as well, because we all have these really fabulous collections, right? right? right. And sometimes you might actually have similar things or be sure. having similar conversations, right, in terms of history. And I think it's great to sort of pair these those things together and just figure out okay, so how can we work together to inform the public, to make people excited about history and to make them excited about, you know, what it means to be an American. Right, right. Very nice. So I think, I know you were at the last uh, Art Afterwards where I you read there, there and looked at a couple portraits of Russell Means. Was that the first one you were at? or had That you... was. Okay, great. That was the very first great. one I attended. Yes, and that was a, that was a fun conversation as well. Um, and I didn't realize uh, when I first met you, our my colleague Maggie, uh, who couldn't join us today, though she had a, a good, she made that connection happen, which I'm glad for. Um, I didn't realize that you really are from the world of libraries yes. rather than museums. So um, talk a little bit about that aspect of your career and yeah. what, how that connects to a mu- museum work. Of course. Um, so previously, um, I was the special collections librarian for teaching and learning at the University of Maryland. So teaching primary source literacy to undergraduate students. Excellent. Um, and I've also worked in other sort of universities as a reference librarian. Um, I've also worked in school libraries as a para-professional librarian. Uh-huh. Um, and so I've kind of been all over the place. I'm trained as an archivist, um, so I'm really all over the place Um, but what I love one of the reasons why I became a librarian is because I wanted to help people Um, I love the idea that what we do is that we disseminate information Mm -hmm. right and it doesn't matter whether it comes from a book a portrait a movie a song right Right. it's all about the dissemination of information and helping people create new kinds of information whether that be a new work of art um, or you know scientific data right or creating a new book Right? So I love mm-hmm. the fact that with the work that we do, we're helping people both find and 
create new information. And I think, you know, with the job that I have now, I mean, I'm pretty much doing a lot of the similar, you know, work that I was doing as a librarian, right? Collections research, doing digging into, you know, archival files and primary sources and old newspapers right. to find information about, you know, obscure women, right? In terms of education, you know, teaching people how to do research and why research is so important. But also, you know, libraries help people understand that research and information is created by humans and we all have our own biases and the idea of sort of thinking about that and always being mindful of that sort of who created this information who's this information for Mm -hmm. right who has access to the information and why Mm -hmm. right thinking about issues like copyright those are issues that are very pertinent in libraries and librarians right same with museums Um, and i think also the same issue that libraries have right now right we're everything to everybody Yes. Right. Everybody wants us to be everything. Same mm-hmm. with museums, mm-hmm. right? We're no longer just a place where people come and enjoy a work of art on a Saturday afternoon, right? We're places where people convene, communities convene. Maybe people come to the National Portrait Gallery just to sketch, right? They don't come to actually engage too much with the art. They come to the courtyard. They think, they reflect, they write, they work. Right. Um, and libraries are the same way, right? right? People come to the space. We have no idea what it is that they're <laughs> doing, right? Um, but we trust that they're doing what it is that makes them happy and, and you know, helps them get along. Um, and I think that there's so many ties in that way. The fact that museums and libraries are constantly being asked and having to sort of um, navigate being asked to be very different things and to play very different roles. Right. Very nice. Uh, so on that question of kind of putting that... Uh, the fact that we have biases up front, the fact that mm-hmm. we're, we're in the world of human beings and their biases, I know that in DC Public Library and public libraries in general, questions about equity and mm-hmm. inclusion and just justice are, uh, I think, more up front than they ever have been before, yeah, but I think we course. still have a lot to do to just get good at making information accessible in exactly. an equitable, just way. Since it sounds like you've uh, been on the teaching end of uh, yeah. uh creating new information professionals. Do you have any thoughts on that aspect of our work? <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the things that I, one of the proudest things that I've ever done with my life was when I was at Maryland, I created the LGBTQ oral history collection from mm-hmm. scratch. Right. Um, so when I was at Maryland, I realized in terms of universe, the history of the university, we didn't have a lot of materials that documented the history of LGBTQ staff, faculty, um, and students on campus. And so I worked with Um, the LGBTQ Equity Center to create the oral history program. Mm -hmm. So they helped me draft the questions. I learned how to use a recorder. Um, We scheduled sessions. Um, And by the time that I left Maryland, we had about a dozen interviews Mm -hmm. of all across the board, graduate students, undergraduate students, faculty, and staff. Um, And I think you know, initiating programs like that, which I know that libraries have done, right? You guys have the DC Punk Rock collection, you yep. have the GoGo collection. I mean, really tapping into the local community and really capturing those stories is so important and a really great way to sort of fill in those holes right. um, in our collections. Yes. Yeah. I mean, just seeing the gaps and being able to see the gaps. Sometimes yep. the gaps are invisible. You don't even know that they're there. It's, exactly. It's, uh, something we always have to keep just learning that over and over again so exactly. that we know how to do it. Yeah. Very nice. And so did you conduct most of those interviews? Or? I did, actually. Okay. Exactly. Um, I recruited a couple of students to help with mm-hmm. the interviews, but I did conduct a large number of them. And I mean, being in the same room, being in a space and, you know, listening to people's stories, I mean, was such an incredibly emotional and privileged experience. I mean, I was honored to yes. be able to sit and listen. Um, but it, 
I, t I learned a lot from those stories, right? Thinking a lot about, as a teacher, the language that I use, thinking about the materials that I pull from my classes, the way that I explain things to people, like really learning about, okay, so I need to be more critical about um, the ways in which I try to connect with people because the things that I think might be okay might not be okay to somebody else. Right. And it's important to communicate with that particular person and ask. Don't assume that you know what people want or, mm -hmm. or what they're looking for or what makes them feel comfortable. You know, you really do have to talk right. to people in order for those things to happen. Right. Um, and DCPL, I don't know if you've uh, become exposed to, we're part of a DC Oral History Collaborative where a few institutions that... Uh, can include oral history in their mandate are getting together and collecting them together, but also making them accessible together because there were a whole bunch of different groups just kind of yep. collecting piles of audio in their own <laughs> their own uh, shops, but not necessarily just making it accessible, which um, you know researchers just want exactly. to come to one place and find exactly. that, um, that documentation of whatever story they're trying to find. Yeah. So that's been a fun project to... Yeah. Um, to dive into. And I think that's something that, you know, coming from the library world and, and coming into the museum world, I think that that's something um, that museums are, are trying to figure out too as well, mm -hmm. right? We have all these really fabulous collections. How can we make them more accessible to the public? And are there ways that we can sort of work together instead of everyone sort of doing their own thing? Are there ways that we can collaborate and come together to make these things sort of one big collection, right? And I think the Smithsonian is thinking about that right now. Sure. Is Smithsonian doing much around oral history that uh, you're aware of or that you get to work on? Yeah, I mean, we do have oral history collections in various museums, American History, um, African American um, History Museum, History and Culture Museum, I know has oral history collections, and I'm sure other have oral history collections too as well. Sure, yeah. So on that, um, I know that one thing that's been interesting working at DC Public Library recently is that some of these national high-profile cultural institutions that are right here in DC have been kind of, uh, for whatever reason, I'm not sure what it is, but kind of looking at the, the city that they live in as, as more of a, a thing that they want to connect to yeah. and serve that community, which has been really fun because um, they've been just kind of coming at us with all kinds of ideas in the Smithsonian. Yeah. Like each one of the Smithsonians has been really fun. We've done stuff with American history, African-American history and culture, the portrait gallery, um, uh, Smithsonian Institution Anacostia Community Museum, yes. we, we yes. have a great partnership with them right now, and that's been a whole lot of fun. One interesting thing, and I don't know uh, how much you can say about this, but we, we have these partnerships with these museums that uh, ostensibly connect to each other, but sometimes it seems like the museums aren't always talking to each other. Is that... Is that changing at all? Or? Oh, I definitely is. And I think, too, with my initiative, the American Women's History Initiative, they're really seeking. I mean, it's sure. really cross-collaborative, and I think it is to combat stuff like that, That's right? Great. Thinking this idea of one Smithsonian, which is sort of the sort of big picture idea, right? One Smithsonian. But, you know, coming into this position, the Smithsonian is so massive. I yes. mean, there's like 26 libraries and museums, yes. I believe that's the number. And so just wrapping my head around one where people are mm -hmm. <laughs> right and what the right acronym is for the museum <laughs> um has been quite a challenge but i think you know i've only been the job for six months and i've just been so lucky to be able to cross um collaborate and to really meet new people and to learn more but it takes a lot of work yes as you understand right to sort yes. of get your way in the door <clears throat> and, and then then once you get your foot in the door things are great but it's just a little overwhelming at first mm -hmm. to sort of think about um the number of inst wonderful institutions that we have and sort of how to connect and figure out sort of sort of what's the right place to sure. to sort of reach out your hand and 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 ask sure um, 
and I'll give a shout out to uh, Brianna White, uh, yes, who works yes. at the Portrait Gallery. That when I think of people from the Smithsonian who've just been really receptive to DC. PL programming. She she's been there right uh, the whole time. Yes, that, that's been a lot of fun working with her. Definitely, and I think that um, NPG. You know, so for those who don't know, the National Portrait Gallery is literally next door um, to the MLK yes. Library downtown. Yes. We are literally <laughs> neighbors, um, and I think. You know, I'm really glad that I work for an institution that's really excited about partnering with a public library and understands the importance of a public library, but also understands that the library can bring in certain audiences that we not, may not be able to connect with, right. which is really essential um, to sort of our mission, right? right? Bringing yes. in different kinds of people into the museum. Yes, for sure. Have you been walking by yes. MLK Memorial Library? Or, yes. Yeah. It, they've done so much construction since I've started. Yes. There's like special lights now up and uh, yep. Yeah, I mean, it looks, it, it actually looks like a, a space that human beings will spend time in. I know. Now. It's actually kind of unnerving <clears throat> to think about, you know, in about a year, it's going to be, that neighborhood's going to be completely different. I mean, I'm super excited exactly. for it. But it's going to be, it's so wild thinking about, you know, in about a year, there'll be people walking around and hanging out and on the rooftop and, yes. and all sorts of stuff happening. Had you spent time in the building before it closed for no. renovation? Okay. No, no. I've only lived in um, the D.C. area for about two and a half years. Okay. Um, so I missed, unfortunately, I missed um, visiting the, the original space. Well, some of it will be the, some of it will be the same, but uh, it will be a dramatically different space. <laughs> yeah. We are excited to get back in there. Um, yes. And on that, uh, I was thinking about when you were talking about the the big uh, diverse world of Smithsonian institutions. I think a lot of people maybe don't realize there's two collections inside the building that you yes. work in, the Portrait oh, Gallery yes. and the Art Collection. But there's actually even a third one, the Archives of American Art. Exactly. And last year we did um, uh, a fun program where for National Novel Writing Month we did a writing session based on a, a piece from the collections of different Smithsonian museums. Oh, and we did... Um, from the Portrait Gallery Unseen, the exhibit, uh, which I won't even try to describe because it was uh, so amazing, but everybody should look up the, the pictures from it. But somebody connected me with somebody from the Archives of American Art, which just had a small exhibition yeah. in there, and it was all about um, art, artists' mail, like um, artists who sent art back and forth through the mail. And this thing that you wouldn't even realize, and I bet a lot of people walk in there and don't even realize it is this third little yeah. museum that they've yeah. walked into um but we did a writing exercise based on this this sock that someone <laughs> that's <laughs> so awesome mail. so it was a lot of fun um so uh that's my little anecdote from working with the smithsonian but that's fabulous i mean because that's to me those experiences are the ones that one bring to life sometimes the absurdity of our mm -hmm. collections um, but also just the you know human nature right like people collect these these things are collected and and you know everyday correspondence between two people can sort of seem sort of random and and not you know relevant but you can sort of turn it into something really special right. um, if you have sort of the right collaborators right very nice uh this is also a question you probably can't answer that easily but um <laughs> The project that you're working on right now, is this sometimes kind of the first little baby steps towards a woman's museum in the Smithsonian? I think right now we're, we're still sort of in the planning stages for that. Um, I know that a lot of folks have been have really excited for a women's museum. Um, but I think right now we're sort of just focusing on, okay, so what is in our collections? What is it that we can do now in the present, right? In the, in the absence of an actual space, what is it that we can do to sort of get these things out here and get people excited. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's okay. pretty much where we're at right now. Sure. So it's, 
it's part of the conversation. Exactly. For sure. Exactly. That's great. That'll be exciting. Um, Hopefully they can find space to build another <laughs> Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Yeah, and if any folks are interested, um, the website is womenshistory.si.edu. Okay. So womenshistory.si.edu. And the mm-hmm. initiative is called Because of Her Story. Okay, very nice. Um, well, returning back to the kind of specific partnership uh, between our two institutions, the and we can talk a little bit about last uh, the last one they're there the one that's about to happen and then we can talk about Toni Morrison sure. any, any of them you want to talk about um, sure. and kind of what your thoughts are on kind of ways to have a meaningful conversation yeah. I know that um, working with Brianna and some of your other colleagues there that question of how do you facilitate this kind yeah. of dual conversation about these two things um, the first uh, pairing that we did was um, Stokely Carmichael for the 1968 exhibit that was up, there was a, a photograph of him, and we um, we read a, a biography of him. So there was this okay. very very direct kind of historical yeah. biographical connection between the portrait and the, the book. And then, um, but for this one, it's a piece of fiction for young people where Angela Davis kind of shows up. Yeah. It's not fiction. I'm sorry. It's 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 Jacqueline Woodson's yeah. uh, memoir, but yeah. it's written for young people in poetry. And I've been listening to it. She reads it. It's beautiful. Yeah. If anybody needs just a nice a nice kind of piece of audio literature to listen to I highly recommend it um so anyway having done one of these and looking towards uh, facilitating the conversation what are you thinking about what to bring to that conversation yeah so one of the things I don't know about you David but when I read a book I tend to let my imagination get away with me in terms of crafting like what this what the setting looks Mm -hmm. like right thinking about like what house do they live in right like you know what does the town look like right and I and I love the idea of um pairing a portrait with that to either negate what it is that my assumptions were about mm-hmm. a particular text or to challenge that. Right. Right. So um, especially when we're talking about um, the last book that we they're read, there. They're there. And then by Tommy Orange. Yep. And then pairing that with the portrait of Russell Means draped in the American flag. Yes. Um, what I loved about that, it, it really sort of threw me off a little bit because it made me think a little bit more deeply about um, some of the things that I struggled with within the book, dealing with mental illness, dealing with substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but never forgetting the perseverance, right? So Mm -hmm. you're thinking about these issues of substance abuse and mental illness, um, but at the same time, you know, really keeping in mind that, you know, these people are here. They're still here, right? They might still be dealing with this stuff, but they're still here and they've been through so 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 very much and they're still here and it kind of made me it it brought me back down to earth rather than sort of being really angry and upset by some of the actions done it's been like okay like this is about a cycle that has you know been going been ongoing for a very long time and the cycle has unfortunately been the output you know the result of you know white supremacy Mm -hmm. and other things um and sort of just being like really mindful of that um, and taking into account that the fact that this story actually exists, whether it be fictional or not in itself is actually really, really amazing. Right. Right. Yes. Um, Yeah. And I think with there, there, you know, even though with a lot of the focus of the book is kind of on um, difficulty, challenging, you know, there's there's, a lot of the characters have some kind of, hard thing that they're dealing with yeah. and, it, and it has a lot to do with the, the history of, uh, of oppression of uh, yeah. uh, Native American people in this country. But it's also, I think, you know, and this is one thing we talked about in the discussion, kind of 
it's about real people living exactly. in the United States right now. It's, exactly. It's in the part of the the way that Native American people get depicted in popular media is often yeah. very kind of exoticizing. And, exactly. Um, this book doesn't do that, and so that's something I, I like about it. Um, it was interesting though. A friend of mine who is who is Native American, she really. Um, she mentioned the Russell Means portraits. I wasn't even—I oh, didn't even mention the book, uh, the book club. But she just said, like, you know, there's only two portraits of kind of contemporary yep. leaders in the American Indian community, and they're of the same person. And it's it's one person who did this specific thing. Like, the um, she's well, kind I, of asking for more yeah. breadth of. Um, uh, I will say that if she wants, I can dig into our collection to see if there's other people. Okay. There, so, <laughs> um, but. Uh, I, I had asked uh, some of your colleagues if we could talk about the. Uh, it's in the art collection though, so mm-hmm. we couldn't kind of explicitly tie it yeah. in. But those those sitting portraits yep. um, from uh, what century would those have been from? Uh, um, I think they're is a part of the Buffalo show that's going on right now. It's a permanent part of the art collection, okay. um, but uh, even though they're from a time when kind of a conquest of this continent oh, okay. was very much alive and well. Yeah. They still very much are kind of very realistic portraits of them mm-hmm. at that time, and so there's something kind of different from the uh, kind of pastoral images of of American Indians, yeah, you know, canoeing around in lakes and yeah. things like that. And I mean that brings into the question of representation, <laughs> yes, right? Like, yes. what does representation actually mean? What is the impact of representation, right? When it's a complicated representation, how how do we digest mm-hmm. those things, right. right? And that's something that's not just relevant to, you know, the indigenous people of this country. This is relevant to everybody, right? right? Like, what do you do with complicated representations of people, particularly people of color? Yes. Um, how do we talk about those things in a way that's meaningful, you know? With the conversations with this book club, what I enjoyed was that people were honest. Mm-hmm. Um, there's always room for empathy. There's always room for people to be honest about their lack of knowledge. Yep. Um, but I think it's always important with these discussions, which I think kind of happened, was for people to understand that where this is they're coming from um, might be coming from a place um, that may need some um, evaluation. But I think if people are open to those sorts of things when talking about representation, I think those conversations are really can be really valuable and important. Sure. Uh... What are you thinking about for the upcoming pairing? Can you say something? The Angela Davis portrait mm-hmm. is from an exhibit... Uh, Called In Mid-Sentence? Yes. Yes. So it's literally a show <laughs> of photographs and people in mid-sentence. Yes. <laughs> um, including JFK. Um, one of my favorite, favorite um, portraits up right now is of Stokely Carmichael um, and Adam Clayton Powell. And they're, in, they're like laughing. And I mm-hmm. don't get, I've ever seen a photo of Stokely Carmichael laughing mm-hmm. like that ever. So that's why I love it so much. He's like, oh, he's jovial. Like, he's not angry. Great. <laughs> Um, and there's some like some really there's a really interesting portrait of LBJ. I'm gonna figure who the other individual is, and he's kind of like cornering him right. um, against the desk, and it's like very aggressive. Um, but what's great about in mid sentence is that one, the pictures are incredibly accessible, right? They're not sort of very, they're not very, they're not you know fashion photos or very you know very stylistic, right? They're literally people being humans, right, in the middle of saying something. So there's something very accessible about them. Uh, but what I like too, it shows. Um, it, it, it literally shows the relationship between um, photography, television, and sort of celebrity and politics in the 1960s and 70s, or sort of in that era. So the importance of television, the importance of sort of radio, the importance of how these things were used to communicate things to the American 
public. Right. Um, and Angela Davis sort of very much utilized these things too as well um, in her career to sort of share her message. Right. And this one is interesting. One thing I'll ask when we all get together and talk about it um, is this is a photograph, and I think it's, I don't know much about the photographer. It's It's got a little bit more of a journalistic yep. uh I don't know if gaze to it. it. It it feels like something you would see from a documentary or something yeah. like that, rather than kind of a piece of art. Exactly. Uh, you know, um, so I think that'll be an interesting thing to think about. Portraits that come from that. Exactly. Photojournalism, kind of. Right. Yeah, and I think too that adds to the accessibility of it, right? Because it's something you might see in a newspaper, right? right. It's something you might see in Time magazine, mm-hmm. right? When you're when you're you know in the grocery grocery store or something. Exactly. Like, well, maybe not the grocery store, <laughs> but you know when you're in the, in the library picking up a, a periodical, right? You might For see sure. this image of of um, Angela Davis. And what I love walking through that gallery space, David, is seeing people recognize who's there without actually looking at the labels oh. and then saying like I was there or like I remember that or like hearing people actually talk about remembering what's going on in that particular piece because they might have been there or remember that, you know, that particular event in history. Exactly. And uh, like I said, the first uh, the first pairing that we did for this whole series was this book from 1968, or the, the kind of very much centered in the civil rights era. And, and um, there were people who came who, who were alive then. Oh, wow. And so, um, and uh, had all had been in different parts of the country and different backgrounds so that they could kind of just talk about what, you know, what, how did this affect me? What was it like to, yeah. to oh, witness that must have been powerful. the event? So that was, that was really good. And, you know, you really did hear, um, you did hear different things. It was the kind of thing where, you know, there was somebody in that group who was from a pretty privileged place in, and had lived in suburban Washington, D.C. at the time and talked about not being able to actually come into the city. Oh, because of the riots. During the, yeah, yeah. The, those events that happened in that year. And oh, sorry, the uprisings. The uprisings. <laughs> um and, you know, there, she may not have had a whole lot of self-awareness about kind of the, how, the, how privilege was her lens on it, yeah. but it was still good to be able to have a space where people could talk about that. I mean, exactly. that, was, that really was what, what her family experienced at that time. Yeah. And it was interesting to just kind of like hear someone who was there talk about it. Yeah. I mean, that's so educational for everybody involved, mm-hmm. right? Hearing, because I mean, there's one thing that you hear, there's one thing that you experience, and then there are the things that you might see through t- TV or a newspaper, right? And so providing as many outlets as we can for people to learn about one particular event, whether it be through a book or someone else's perspective or you doing research, um, I think is a really powerful right. thing. It may not be the perspective, but it's one more perspective sure. um, when thinking about something that has happened so hopefully when we talk about Angela Davis because this portrait I think is from 1969 so we're kind of returning to that to that era um and and the the portrait that we're going to talk about um when she's describing it in the book she's you know she's a a young person herself at that time and is watching tv and Angela Davis comes on is um is uh giving a speech and to to your point of how do we picture what's happening in the book this this picture kind of is very much what, yep, <laughs> what exactly. I pictured. Exactly. So that'll be that'll be fun to put those two things together. Yeah. Yeah. Have you read the book already? Or I'm almost done. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a really I've, for those who haven't read Jacqueline Woodson, she's um, she really is a treasure in, in oh she's fabulous kids literature right now and and and, and she just released um, a fiction book correct for adults mm-hmm. um, not too long ago read it uh, read at the bone yes the new yes book. Yep. I actually used um, I um, adjunct at the College of Information Studies at Maryland so I teach 
people who are getting their library degrees. And um, I taught a young adult young adult literature course and we used The House You Pass Along the Way by Jacqueline Woodson which is I don't know if you're familiar with it but it's a very short book one. about two queer black girls okay. um, in the south in the rural south mm-hmm. um, in the 1970s I believe um, and it is a, it's a short book but it's one of my favorite books mm-hmm. of all time and what I love so much about Jacqueline Woodson is that she's so great at capturing a particular moment in time like there's just something about her that's just like so like I can't stand it I'm so jealous like she's just so great at sort of capturing these really really crucial moments and sort of really talking about um particularly if you're talking about there are not a lot of representations of queer black girls in Mm -hmm. in young adult literature or in literature period um and so what i love about the house you pass um on the way um is that she really really sort of hones in on the sort of the isolation that sometimes one can feel I'm um, sort of dealing with this sort of thing so she's so just so good I love her so much yes <laughs> yes we read uh when I was still working in a branch library I uh, led a book club there and we read uh, another Brooklyn oh, okay excellent lovely 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 so yeah. um she's she's well worth the time and always kind of, um even though her there's a lot of gravity in the subject matter of her books yep. they are very readable um yep. she you know she kind of writes in a very poetic way um but uh, it doesn't feel like a, a slog, even no. though there's a lot of kind of serious stuff that happens in, in a lot of her books. So um, cool. Um, yes, you teach young adult literature. Yes. Recommend some other titles and authors. Yes. <laughs> um, so we read um, in the class, we read Shadow Shaper by DJ Older. Okay. DJ uh, Daniel Jose Older. Yes. Um, we read. Oh my goodness, it was so long ago. Um, a lot of my students uh, really gravitated towards I Am Not Your Mexican Daughter. Uh-huh. Um, many of them loved, um, is it Pratchett? The fi- fantasy yes. sci-fi reader, Terry yes. Pratchett? Okay. Yes, they really loved <laughs> Pratchett. Um, they were just fabulous students. Um, but right now, I'm actually, I just finished reading Such a Fun Age by uh-huh. Riley yes. Reed, which was amazing. Okay. Absolutely fabulous. Um, and I just finished reading In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado, which is heavy. <laughs> so, you know, it's not, a, it's not a quick, it's not a quick read by any means. No. Um, um, yeah, that book certainly uh, packs a punch. <laughs> yeah. And I'm actually reading another YA novel right now, um, The Downstairs Girl by Stacey Lee. Okay. I believe that came out maybe in 2019 I can't remember but I try to keep up with this stuff because one I mean it's amazing and very very digestible um and two there's just some really great books yep there's just some really great there's too many actually there's too many there's a lot of books books out out there there. (laughs) (laughs) um well that's great uh we uh last summer while, while ALA was here we got uh, a couple of the big institutions who were here wanted to do stuff with the library. So we had Jacqueline Woodson oh. at, at Dunbar High School. I wish I'd known you to tell I you know. to come. Um, she was uh, gracious and wonderful. Like oh. everything they say about her is true. She's just a real delight to, to oh. interact with. Um, and we also, the National Book Foundation uh, wanted to do some stuff around James Baldwin. Oh, excellent. And uh, the, the book that was, or the movie, I Am Not Your Negro. Yeah, which is wonderful. Based on a book. Yeah, really, really uh, great stuff to engage with and kind of just listen to his words yeah. about that experience. But we were, it was funny when we were planning it, they said, well, uh, we just want to talk about the book and we'll, we'll get a couple authors who'll come. We'll, when we, we'll figure out who they are. We'll, oh we'll let you. And then finally they said, we got uh, Jason Reynolds and... 
E.B. Zaboy. So we got Jason Reynolds and E.B. Zaboy. Jason Zaboy. Reynolds was there? Yeah. He's local, so it's, you know, it's... I it's, know, but he's so wonderful. Out. He's wonderful. Um, and E.B. Zaboy, if you haven't yeah. read her, she's really um, terrific, too. So um, those are uh, two other shout-outs for great young adult literature yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah, I think actually one of my students ended up writing her final term paper on um, YA novels about black boys, and I think Jason Reynolds was very heavy on that list, too, very as nice. well. Very nice. Well, I just got the signal that we should wrap up. Is there anything else you want to talk about? No, just thank you so much. I'm so, so pleased um, to be here, and I look forward um, to having everybody come visit us uh, for our book clubs. Very much. It's a uh, third Tuesday of this month. Um, technically, it is sold out. It's a free event, but it's they're all filled up. I usually, uh, hopefully Brianna won't kill me if I say this, come anyway. Like I, <laughs> I've never seen it so full that somebody didn't have a seat. So I, if, if it interests you, I hope you'll join. Um, is your position is it ongoing or will it is uh, it a term appointment? Kind um, I have of thing? a few years, but I'm hoping that you know maybe it'll keep going. Um, do you mind if I plug a couple of programs that I please got going do and on? put out on any social media yeah. handles you want to talk sure. up? <laughs> um, so I actually have two teacher workshops that are coming up. Um, one this month on um, women's history on February 25th, Great. and one on culturally reflective teaching on March 31st. And then I'm leading a book club on Toni Morrison's Paradise on May 20th. Or May 19th, excuse me. Yeah, uh, yes. It's whatever the third Tuesday is. And yep. that's, again, the... So please come join us. The portrait and the book and kind of uh, Toni Morrison. If you didn't read much from her later on after she won her Nobel Prize, you know, that's yeah. this is I think that's a good example yeah. of, of her literature from that part exactly. of her career. And if you haven't read Paradise, the first line will take you out. Okay. <laughs> good to know. <laughs> oh, you've been warned. Okay. Well, uh, Ashley, thanks so much for joining us. This Thank was, you, David. This was very fun. And uh, this has been an episode of the D.C. Public Library on full-service radio broadcasted live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. For more information about the D.C. Public Library, visit your nearest neighborhood library or dclibrary.org. Also, please follow us on Instagram at D.C. Public Library and Twitter at DCPL. Please download this show wherever you get your podcasts by searching for full-service radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.